0: I well, do take your Bible and turn with me to Second Samuel chapter 24. We come to wind up after spending some time in the book of Samuel, comprised of these two books, one and two Samuel. And this is where the story ends. It doesn't end with the account of David's last days. It doesn't tell us how he died. We find that out elsewhere in Scripture. This is the writer's chosen place to stop. And as we'll discover, there are reasons for him doing so. One of the things we've discovered as we've looked at the book of Samuel is the brutal honesty of the author when recounting and reporting the life and times of these significant people in the history of redemption, people like Samuel himself and Saul and David, who is uh, the current person that we've been looking at. I imagine that much of the material that the author had at his disposal came from David. And it tells you something of the character of the man that he should have delivered over this material that we've read in these weeks. This is the conclusion of an ambiguous life. And uh, even at the conclusion we have our attention drawn to his ambition and his pride on the one hand, but also on his humility and godliness on the other and its inclusion in scripture and uh, this important place that it occupies as we come to the end of this book of Samuel is a standing rebuke it seems to me to all of those who are quick to pounce on those who fail, I'm thinking of believers who fail, Uh, those who are quick to use a person's failure or sin as a way of defining who that person is. We could define who David was by his public sins. No question about that. But the Bible refuses to define the man by his sins. And nor should we define people by their failures and shortcomings. If you've come, perhaps you've come into this building this morning with your tail between your legs. You're running away from a past that shames you. You're you've rebelled against God, you've sinned against God, your face is full of shame, you're hiding in the crowd as it were. I want to say to you, this church welcomes sinners because we know ourselves to be sinners in need of the mercy of God. Not that we should stay in our sin, but God welcomes sinners to himself. With that in mind, then, I want you to look at this passage and to see three issues that are raised in this passage all of them concern David. David really is the star of the show as we come to the end of the book for a whole list of reasons the most of which have to do with the future as well as with the past with the future. Particularly it is a future orientation that we are left with at the end of this chapter. David's sin, David's confession and David's altar those are the 3 issues that are raised here. First of all then in verses one to nine we have a focus on David's sin. Again the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Again it happens time and time and time again in the record of the Hebrew Scriptures that God's anger is kindled against His people. We know that God is angry with the world in its rebellion We know that God is angry with the nations in their idolatry, but it seems that in the Hebrew Scriptures it is with Israel, His chosen people, that God has most cause to be angry. Just as it is with His church today that God has most cause to be angry. After all, they know more than the rest of the world. They have seen more of the work of God than the rest of the world. They hear God's word more than the rest of the world does. We are more culpable than the rest of the world. No wonder the Bible says that judgment begins in the house of God. And so we find the Lord's anger is kindled against Israel. Earlier on in the book of Samuel, in what we call 1 Samuel, we saw the anger of God kindled against Israel for its abuse of holy things. And there it was one man, a man called Uzzah, who had reached out to steady the Ark of the Covenant that was being transported on a cart. And here was a man, man, Uzzah, who thought that uh, the Ark, the Holy Ark of God was going to topple over and fall into the mud And here was a man who thought that he, as a human being, was more clean than the mud into which the ark of God would fall. And that man was judged immediately dead as a result of the judgment of God. Because the reality is that the mud of the ground is cleaner than the human beings that walk upon the ground when it comes to the presence of a holy God. It was a good reminder. It was a good reminder. So here at the end of the book we have the the wrath of God, the anger of God, kindled against Israel once more. So it's like a bookend to the story of Samuel, the burning anger of of God was against Israel. We have no idea what the specific reason was, we don't need to know a reason. Every day in Israel, every day in Israel, like every day in the life of the church today, There are reasons aplenty for the anger of God to be kindled against the people of God. We don't need a specific reason to know it. But there's more in this first verse. Do you notice this? The anger of the Lord is kindled against Israel, and He incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. So here we have a statement that God is inciting David to do something that is going to be the means by which he judges Israel because whenever the king acts he acts as the federal head of the people when David acts Israel acts because with the king so with the people that's the way it goes in scripture there's a kind of solidarity of kingship over the people just as in the garden of Eden where Adam acts he acts on behalf of all humanity as goes Adam so goes humanity as goes David so goes Israel so God comes and incites David to sin against them against Israel that's what it says here if we leaf through our Bibles to Chronicles, the book of 1 Chronicles, chapter 21, verse 1, that recounts the same incident, we would discover that it says something like this, the devil, Satan, incited David against them. And then if you just scan your eye down this chapter and you get David's comment on what went on, David's comment is, that he personally by deliberate choice had acted foolishly and willfully and sinfully against God. So which is it? Is it David? Is it the devil? Is it the Lord? Well, we start with a presupposition. We start with this presupposition. The Bible teaches us to understand that the Lord never provokes people to sin. He is never tempting people to sin. We start with that presupposition. So how on earth can it say that the Lord incited David to do something against Israel? Let me answer that question by saying that the writer of the book of Samuel has A habit throughout his writing of ignoring secondary factors. He goes straight to the top. When 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 he's when he's trying to narrate something that happens, he he doesn't say, you know, this was this was a problem. The State Department did this, or or the, the CIA did that, or an agent committed that problem. Oh, he goes straight to the top. The president is responsible, ultimately. And in the book of Samuel, the writer always goes straight to the top and says, Ultimately, whatever happens, God is God. The buck stops, as Harry Truman said, not at his desk in the White House, but it stops with God. God is God. Our confession of faith says this, For God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of His own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. I listened this week to R.C. Sproul. Tell the story of of drawing this to the attention of a seminary class and asking them, reading that to them and saying, How many of you agree with what I've just said? that God of his own will freely and unchangeably ordains whatsoever comes to pass. Most of them put their hand up. He said, put your hands down. Put your hand up if you're an atheist. Nobody put their hand up. He said, you're inconsistent. If you didn't agree with what I've just read, you don't believe in God. Because all we're saying when we say that God, by his most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordains whatsoever comes to pass. All we're saying is that God is God. And God rules the world. And God orders history. And nothing happens that is outside the orbit of the decree of God. God ordains whatever comes to pass. That's fundamental you don't believe in God if you don't believe that but it goes on to say this yet so as thereby neither is God the author of sin nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away but rather established in other words Ultimately, everything is ordained by God. God permits the devil to tempt David. The devil can't make David do it. He can only tempt David to do it. He can make the the possibilities and the circumstances conducive to his doing it. At the end of the day, man is the author of his own sin. He made the decision. David woke up one morning and he thought, I'm going to go and count the people. We don't know why. We're not told why. We're not even told why the census was a sin, for goodness sake. Because in the law, there was permission given to have a census. It may very well be, and there are all kinds of answers that are that are delivered and possibilities. It may very well be that the connection is with the previous passage, in chapter 22 where there's a great long list of the mighty men that David had on his side fighting for him his battles. It may very well be that David was thinking about that and he thought I'd really like to know just how strong my military is so that I'm poised and ready and prepared to either expand my territories or to meet any attack and assault that may come. Maybe that was on his mind, in which case it was a failure of faith It was a failure to trust that the Lord would fight for him. He wanted to be sure that he had the numbers there available, that he could call on at a moment's notice to fight for Israel. Maybe. The reality is we're not told. We don't need to know. The Bible, God, who's behind the Bible, feels no need to explain his actions to us. And often he doesn't. All we need to know is that behind everything there is God. But ultimately, David is to blame for his action. And you can see that in the story as it unfolds here. David gives the order. They're going to take a census of all the military men that they have. And Joab, who's the commander-in-chief of the armed forces. And we know about Joab. We know that Joab is not a very nice man. You know, jo- Joab would put a bullet between your eyes without even hesitating. Not that he had a gun, but if he had, he'd have done that. That's the kind of guy he was. Joab uh, was just a straight-talking, straight-shooting person. And it's Joab in the story. Do you notice this? Joab said to David, May the Lord your God add as many, uh, a hundred times as many as there are, while the eyes of my Lord the king still see it. By the way, that wasn't a very very, uh, nice thing to say to the king. You're getting a bit old. You're going to be nearly dead. I I hope that the Lord kind of, you know, does Gives you a bit of a revival here in Israel before, before you're dead and can't see it. But he, he, uh, he says, but Lord, don't, my Lord the King, don't do this. Don't do this. this. This is the wrong thing. I mean, it's unbelievable. This is Joab, who's prepared to do anything for David, including kill people for David. Here he is saying to David, how can you possibly be pleased with this thing? How can you do this thing? Because what you'll do if you do this thing, he says, is you will bring guilt on Israel. As with the king, so with the people. You do this, you're acting the way Adam acted in the garden. If you do this, you will bring guilt on Israel. What does David do? David dismisses. Joab's word. Verse 4, the king's word prevailed against Joab. Literally, it overlooked what Joab said. It just kind of ignored what Joab said, overpowered what Joab said. After all, the king overwhelms his rank. He's above him, and the king's word goes, and he is adamant that they're going to do this thing. David sins, in other words, with his eyes open. Nobody makes him sin. The devil doesn't make you sin. God doesn't make you sin. God doesn't exercise some control on your will and make you sin. Neither the devil nor God makes you sin. You sin of your own deliberate choice. All God does is He lets you. It's part of His judgment on the world. He lets you. And His permission for you to sin does not interfere with his plan and purpose. God reigns over all. So there's David's sin. And then in verses 10 to 17, we read about David's confession. What's encouraging about this man, David, is if you look at verse 10, that conviction of sin rises spontaneously from his heart. That's a great thing. Nobody, nobody comes and twists his arm. Nobody comes and zaps him. Nobody, no prophet comes and says, you know, you've done the wrong thing like happened before in his life. This time we're told, verse 10, David's heart struck him after he'd numbered the people. There they came in with the statistics and their impressive statistics. 800,000 valiant men from Israel, northern Israel. 500,000 valiant men of Judah, there you are. They're crack troops ready to do your will. And it was almost as if as soon as the numbers were delivered to him, he thought to himself, what have I done? What have I done? He becomes conscious, stricken. Because David knew God, you see. He knew God and he knew that his life was lived under the eye of God. And so David said to Yahweh, I have sinned greatly in your sight in what I have done. That's interesting, by the way, that in Scripture there is never any analysis of the psychology of sin. We would like to know what was going on in David's head when he made this decision. What was he thinking? You know, sometimes you hear about somebody doing something really ridiculous and you think to yourself, what was he thinking when he did this? The Bible doesn't always answer that question. Matt usually doesn't answer that question. What the Bible's concerned about in a sense is not what you were thinking, it's what you ended up doing. It's what you did. David's sin is what he did to God here. Well, he sees the numbers and immediately he's convicted and he comes to God and he casts himself upon God's mercy and he confesses his sin. Do you know how important it is to confess sin? That's how you become a Christian, by the way, if you're not not a Christian. You have to see that as far as you and God are concerned, you're in hostility to Him. Even though you don't have a long list of crimes you've committed, if you haven't loved the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, and if you're not trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, you have sinned against Almighty God. That's a bigger sin than all of the many little sins sometimes that you haven't committed and congratulate yourself on having avoided. But I'm talking to Christian people at this moment. Here is a man who believed in the mercy of God, who believed in the promise of the Messiah, who was saved by Christ and had his sins forgiven. And he still confesses his sins. There's a kind of movement going around. I think it started... uh, somewhere in Australia, but it's uh, infecting other parts of the world, that regards the confessing of sin as something that Christians shouldn't do. A little phrase that is used sometimes is, is something like this. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more, and there's nothing you can do to make God love you less. Now, in the proper context, there's some truth to that. But the way in which it's being used is, If you've been put right with God and been forgiven, then that's it. It's all settled. Why would you go through the business of confessing your sin again to God since it's been pardoned? He's forgiven your sins, the past and the present and the future. You're fine. On you go. Pat on the head. Get on with it. Your Christian life. Yet the reality is, you see, Christians are, in the language of Martin Luther, Simul justus et peccator, simultaneously justified and sinful. The reality is that even believers are, have the remainders of sin, as the Puritans called it, the remainders of sin still within us. In fact, the Apostle John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And he goes on to say, if we go on confessing, we corporately go on confessing our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Can a believer offend God? Yes. Can a believer push God away? Yes. Can a believer displease God? Yes, he can. Can we disrupt our fellowship with God? Oh, absolutely. What do we do? You do what you do. When you did something your mother told you not to do, you go and you fess up to her. So that the fellowship, the relationship can be re-established on honest lines. That's what we do together when we come to church. We confess our sins because we know we're sinners. It doesn't matter what it is, we don't have to spell it out because it's going to be different for everybody, but we know that we are sinners and we need the mercy of God. And here David calls for mercy. God gives him mercy, but sometimes sin has consequences, and so the prophet goes to David with a word from God. Three things I offer you. Choose one of them that, it, that I may do it to you. Pardon does not negate discipline. And David is presented with this terrible decision to make. He has three options, multiple choice. Three years of famine, three months of fleeing from your enemy, three days of plague. What will you choose, David? David's choice as we'll see in a moment, is to throw himself on the mercy of God. But I want you to notice what God is doing here. He is making David accept responsibility for his actions. There's no ducking or diving here. There's no room for David to say, well, you know, the devil made me do it, or it was ordained in the big plan of God, or it was my genetic makeup. It was my parents' fault. They didn't let me watch the Lone Ranger when I was a little boy. He, he wasn't able to say, you know, my therapist is, is to blame. Or it's the church that I go to, you know, they're not loving enough or, you know, intelligent enough or beautiful enough or whatever it is. There, there's no room for, for ditching the responsibility. God is saying to David, you did it, you pay for it. Not only do you pay for it, Israel pays for it because what you do, Israel does. You're acting on their, on their part. You're the shepherd, they're the sheep. You're like Adam in the garden. You're acting on behalf of the people. In that sense, David is different from us. But God is saying to David, you need to accept responsibility for this. You decide. What does he do? He casts himself on the mercy of God. And he asks that God would decide. And so what God decides is for three days of plague and 70,000 people die and the death toll is rising but one in twenty of Israel's manpower dead terrible harvest reaped for sowing the seeds of pride but David was right to cast himself on the mercy of God because look what it says in verse 16 when the angel stretched out his hand towards Jerusalem chronicles says he stretched out his sword toward Jerusalem to destroy it. The Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, It is enough. Now stay your hand. God presses pause. Just pause. There's the angel parked outside of Jerusalem. He's been doing this terrible work. Now he's told to stop for a moment and wait and there he is waiting the judgment is still impending it has been paused but it has not been dealt with or resolved a resolution still awaits David realizes this in verse 17 and so he goes back to God do you notice and he calls on Yahweh he spoke to Yahweh when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said behold I have sinned, and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. What is David doing here? He is accepting responsibility. The responsibility is the Lord's anointed. The thing he never thought about when he initiated the census earlier. He is now facing up to the fact that he has a responsibility as the Messiah figure of his day as the Lord's anointed in his day he has a responsibility for the people he knows that his guilt transfers to them in the solidarity of their covenant relationship with God but he goes as the head of the covenant the one to whom the promises are made and he goes to God and he says oh God oh God I pray for them I pray for those sheep that you have given me I pray for them that I have offended and brought under your wrath. I pray for them and I ask you, Lord, to have mercy upon them. And I pray if it's possible, if it's possible that you punish me, that you take my life away, that you inflict your judgment on me and on my family, my successors after me, and spare, spare the people. Spare the people. I want you to notice that God actually took David seriously in his intercession for the people. I listen to David pleading for the people and I think of the Lord Jesus interceding for his people. I think of our greater David, Jesus, as he takes the position of of being our mediator and our intercessor, and he, he offers himself to the Father, and he says, you know, for their sakes, I consecrate myself, I offer myself as the sacrifice, I offer myself to you to die in their place. And so we come to the last part of this passage, verses 18 to 25. God, David's altar, which is God's solution. Gad came that day, the day he prayed that prayer, that day and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna, Aruna the Jebusite. And here is God's solution to the problem. David says, let me die for the people. God says, here's a sacrifice. Build an altar. The animal will die for the people. The substitute will die for the people. And Then you have that long discussion, in which David with his retinue goes up, in obedience to God's word to the threshing floor of Aruna. There's Aruna doing his job. He lifts his eyes and there's the royal party coming towards him, and he wonders what's gonna happen next. And the king says, I want to build an altar here. And Aruna says, Oh, that's all. Okay. Well, you can have this, you can have this bit to build your altar. In fact, I'll give you the materials to build, to, to burn in the altar, and I'll give you the, the tools you need, and, and I'll give you the animals that you can slaughter. I'll give it all to you, you know? I thought he was coming for something more serious than this. David says, no, I can't do that. I, as the Lord's anointed, I have to pay the price for this sacrifice. I have to pay fully for this sacrifice. I'm going to pay for the land. I'm going to pay for the materials. I'm going to pay for the animals. I'm going to pay the price that's required for this. I want you to notice what's going on here. He's asking the Lord, let me die instead of them. The Lord says, build an altar. He says, let me pay. Let me pay the price for the altar and the sacrifice. In my capacity as the Lord's anointed. Which is what he does. He builds the altar. He makes the sacrifice. And the plague is averted from Israel. Where does this all take place? In those days Jerusalem was a much smaller city. It took place outside the wall of the city. Just east and north of the city. It took place on Mount Moriah. Where Abraham had taken Isaac. And you remember the sword. The knife of judgment is above Isaac. God intervenes spares Isaac's life. He had said, go, sacrifice Isaac. God intervenes and provides a, ra- a lamb, which they kill instead of Isaac. On that same piece of ground, David meets with God. He builds an altar. He brings the offerings he'd offered himself but he wasn't worthy, was he? He wasn't worthy to die for us David he just sinned how can a sinner be worthy to die for other sinners? what we need is a perfect sacrifice what we need is a sacrifice that will actually do the business to to resolve the problem between us and God on the same mount where Isaac was offered where David now offers his altar, they were going to build a temple. That's exactly where the temple was built. On the threshing floor where the altar was built, that's exactly where the altar in the temple was placed. And on that altar for hundreds of years, there would be sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice to deal with sin. None of them ever did the business. Until a thousand years later, great David's greater son, one of David's successors, do you remember what he said? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. God stays His hand against David, but does not stay His hand against David's greater son our David, our Jesus and on the same mountain on that same mountain an altar is built of wood and on that altar is pinned the sacrifice and three days later as there was three days in the story of Abraham, and three days in the story of David here. After three days, that sacrifice was demonstrated to have been accepted by God. What is David doing here? He's pointing us to the future. He does that, you see, at the end of verse 17 when he points to his succession, And he does it at the end where he says that something is done that that averts the plague from Israel. Deals with the judgment. And as he points us into the future, to his succession, we come this morning, you and I, to Jesus. Same place, same mountain. But this time, a son of David is able to say to God, my life is perfect. I'm the spotless sacrifice. Let me die for my people. And there in Calvary, bearing sin, And scoffing rude, in my place, condemned he stood. David leaves it wide open for Jesus, you see. And you and I, if you're a believer this morning, are the beneficiaries of all that Jesus did perfectly for us, resolving the sin problem by the sacrifice of himself, once for all time, to bring us to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in this great book of Samuel we have discovered people like ourselves, with as complex personalities and lives as we have, and yet people that you take up and use in your purpose. But we've also been pointed beyond them, beyond them to the great Messiah Jesus, our Savior, our dear Savior. And we pray this morning that everybody in this room would be able to say as they leave today that they are trusting and resting on Him alone, for their salvation. We pray this in his strong name. Amen.